you had my personal welcome to you all. Thank you for uh, joining in today. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter uh, 19. We'll pray together before we read the Scripture. It'll be John 19, 1 to the 16, to the first part of verse 16. How gracious you are, O God, that you would commit your word to us, your people, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the movement of godly men that would compose and write and and preserve this word. Thank you this morning that we have our own copy of the scriptures and it's uh, readable and understandable in our language. We thank you that what we have before us is authoritative in a day where there's so much doubt about what is true. We are anxious to turn and hear from you and recognize that what we're getting is absolutely without error and it is authoritative it guides our lives in all our life and in our doctrine thank you that it's sufficient that we need not turn elsewhere for truth but there is within here sufficient knowledge to bring us home to glory with you you are infinite beyond any comparison your truth is in fa- and, uh, sometimes incomprehensible. There are areas of your ways that are uh, a mystery to us. But as we open the scriptures, we know that you have granted us this knowledge to guide our thoughts and our thinking. Help us now as we read your word. And as we hear it explained, we pray the Holy Spirit of God would illuminate it to our hearts and it would guide, as Pastor Josh has said, it would guide the joy and the peace that comes through coming to the table of the Lord in contentment and without fear. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, 
Take him yourself and crucify him, I, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these things, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is God's holy word. Pilate was facing a very vindictive, vicious, vitriolic crowd, and yet he was doing his level best to release Jesus. He really wanted, he really, really wanted Jesus to be released. But fueled by the hatred of the Jewish leaders, they would only be satisfied if Christ was executed. So Pilate thought that he could perhaps pacify the crowd, and he had the soldiers, the other gospel writers, say that he ordered that the soldiers would punish Jesus. And there they beat him and they put the crown of thorns on his head and, and they mocked him and they put perhaps a, a, a purple robe, one of the outfits that the Roman soldiers would wear. They whipped him. And then Pilate brings Jesus out to the crowd again Perhaps he was thinking that when they see this pitiful stature of humanity beaten and bloody and mocked as a king, they might change their mind. And so rather than as in other cases where he said, here is your king, he says, here is the man. Here's the man. We don't know, but I sincerely believe he was hoping that the crowd might just break out in laughter and maybe disperse. 
But they didn't. They cried all the louder, crucify Him. Crucify Him. And so passing the blame to them, Pilate says, take Him yourself and crucify Him. But that frustrated the crowd. They had no means of crucifying Him. They needed Him. They would not let Pilate just wash his hands of the matter. They needed Pilate to make a decision. They needed capital punishment. So they reverted back to the former, if you're tracking with me, the former charge. You'll recall they took him to Pilate on civil charges. So knowing they couldn't gain any ground on the civil charge that he has made himself to be king, they went back to the former charge and said, you have to kill him for in our law he has claimed to be God, the Son of God. And it's interesting if you notice what John says. In verse 7, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Wouldn't you love to be able to get into the mind and the emotions of this man? What was it that caused him this great fear when he heard that this may be the Son of God? Some commentators speculate that in the Roman pantheon of gods, they did believe that gods came down to earth and looked like human beings. And they always came down and brought fear and terror. They were never displayed in ways where they did good for the people. When you saw a god, so to speak, that brought fear. You remember the apostles that were in one town where they claimed when they saw the miracles that the apostles did, they said, these are gods, and they bowed down in fear. Perhaps that's what was going on in Pilate. He suddenly realized the possibility that this Jesus of Nazareth was one of the pantheon of gods who actually was there, and that frightened him So he took him back into his praetorium, back into his headquarters, and he asked them the question, and if you think back to last Sunday, he asked them the question that Jesus has already answered. Where are you from? You get that? And this time Jesus didn't answer him. He'd already answered him. And he didn't give him the time of day to answer him. Christ's silence insults him. Don't you know I have the authority to release you? The authority to crucify you? And Jesus reminds him that he would have no authority, none, if it wasn't given to him powerful statement of the sovereignty of God over the kings and rulers of the world. He would have no authority if it wasn't given to him. 
And Jesus says, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. I, I have no idea why he said that to Pilate. Was he trying to make Pilate less guilty than he already felt? I don't know. I kind of doubt that. But here Jesus puts the guilt of the crucifixion clearly on the nation of Israel. Clearly on the nation of Israel. That's not my opinion. That was Peter's opinion. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter got up and spoke, spoke before the, the thousands of Jews that were gathering, he said, Men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified and handed over to wicked men. If there was guilt to be made here, the guilt lay in the nation of Israel. This encounter encourages Pilate a little bit, and he tries to even more to release Jesus. But that simply, that simply is, a, is a tipping point, it seems, for the crowd. They come back to Pilate and say, you're no friend of Caesar. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. History records that Pilate was already in trouble with Caesar three times. He had already had done things that got the Roman government upset. And he did not need, even if it was a false charge, he did not need the word to get back to Rome that he was operating counter to the will and the aim of the Roman Empire. This could have been the last strike for him. It was this point that Pilate gave up. It was at here that he capitulated to the crowd. He still believes Jesus to be innocent, but now he must have him crucified. Perhaps the most disturbing part of this story is the Jewish statements that are made. When they said, crucify him, crucify him, they then said to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Do you see that in verse 16, 15 and 16? We have no king but Caesar. Here, on behalf of the entire nation of Israel, the chief priests had admitted that they denied their calling. They were denying the fact that the sovereign God of Israel, prior to its constitution, went to the Ur of the Chaldeans and called out a pagan and made him the father of Israel. They denied that calling. They denied that under Moses, this nation was constituted under the holy law of God. They denied their entire heritage in this one statement. They denied that Jesus was the Messiah, and they denied that God was their king. 
Perhaps this is the most troubling assessment. And John shares this with you because at the very beginning of his gospel, he made it clear that Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. And that is the end. For then we read in John's account, so they delivered him over to them to be crucified. I noted it as I read the New Testament. There were seven times when Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Seven separate occasions where Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. John, the author of this gospel, when he wrote his first letter in 1 John, said, In him there is no sin. Jesus Christ was sinless. We know that. But the crucifixion of the sinless Savior, I believe, was the greatest injustice ever in the world. History is replete with injustices, genocides, forced slavery, torture, mass expulsions of people, our own national heritage as Canadians is awash with injustice. And our current news headlines are pointing that out to our sad devastation. Even in our own Western world in Canada, for political or economic or other reasons, our nation has allowed abuse to take place, injustice to take place, often pointed towards certain minorities. But this is the greatest injustice in all history. To crucify the sinless, blameless, Son of God, for sins he did not commit, was the greatest injustice of history. But as I conclude, I also want to say, without this injustice, you and I would have no salvation. The injustice of Jesus the seven opportunities where Pilate said, I find no fault in him, the seven times he repeated that, were absolutely necessary that you and I might be saved today and that you and I might gather around the Lord's table. It took the blameless, perfect, innocent, impeccable, holy Son of God 
to die a criminal's death in order for us to have salvation. There was no plan B. Let me explain by asking you a question. If Christ had come to this earth and earned forgiveness of sin for all of us, would that be enough to reconcile us to God and guarantee us an inheritance in heaven? If Christ came and brought forgiveness to every single one of you, would that be sufficient to guarantee you an inheritance in heaven with God? And the answer is no. No. We need more than forgiveness for what we have done wrong. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5:48, Therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, forgiveness brings our debt to the Father to zero. Forgiveness cleans our slate. But our slate is clean and empty and there's nothing on it. There's no righteousness on it. There's no perfection on it. It's just brought down to zero balance. The mission of Jesus wasn't simply to die on the cross. The mission of Jesus was also to provide for us a righteousness that we do not have. Paul said in Romans 3.21, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. All of us this morning will gather, as you will, around this table and celebrate the grace of God that we gain through faith in Jesus Christ. And we base it on His suffering on the cross but you have to understand he needed also to live a perfect life such like such as the, the even the roman empire would say you're not guilty his apostles would say he was without sin his own father was pleased with him he was absolutely sinless and that is necessary for our salvation our lives are filled with sin. And the cross of Christ, through the forgiveness of our sin, cleans the slate clear. But we're still left owing a righteous life to God. Be ye perfect as I am perfect. We're still left adding 
a righteous life to our account. And how can we do that? And the Bible is very clear. We do that through faith in Christ, whom God takes the righteousness of Christ, the perfect life of Christ, and applies it to our account. And then we can have fellowship with God. Then we can be reconciled with God. Then we can be assured of our heavenly home. When our sins are forgiven and we have been given the righteousness of God, then and only then is salvation complete. And so it is very important that Jesus Christ be affirmed as blameless. For it's in, in, it's in his blamelessness we have salvation. We love to sing the hymn, The Solid Rock. Remember these words? On Christ, uh, my hope is built on nothing less. You finish this. And Jesus' blood and righteousness. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. It's the righteousness of Christ that adds positive righteousness to our account. He clothes us with this perfection of Jesus. And without the clothing of the perfection, the righteousness, theologians call it the imputed righteousness of Christ, without the imputed righteousness of Christ, given to us freely by grace through faith, we have no salvation We've not done a positive thing that is good. But the author of that great hymn reminds us our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but Holy lean on Jesus' name. Beloved Christian, if you're here this morning, I want to rejoice with you as we celebrate the Lord's table and wallow in the grace as we remember that he died on the cross and once and for all paid for all our sin. But I also invite you to join together as you celebrate the Lord's table, that not only did he stand in our place on Calvary's cross, he stood in our place in life. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And it's his blood and righteousness that saves the author of the hymn said, We wholly lean on Jesus' name. That echoes the Reformation cry, Sola Christus, Christ alone. Our hope isn't on anything else. If you're hoping that you'll do good enough that when God looks at you in judgment, you score an 89.9%, that's not going to cut it. If you're hoping that he'll mark on the curve and say, you know, 
you didn't have it that easy in life, so I'm just going to give you a break here. That's not going to cut it. Unless we are perfect, as God is perfect, we cannot cut it. And therefore, we need a perfection that is outside of ourselves, that is given to us freely by grace. And that perfection was earned by a Savior who took on human flesh, came to this earth, lived an absolutely perfect life in every way. So those who look to him by faith gain his perfect motives. Those who look to him by faith gain his perfect words. Those who look to him by faith gain his perfect behavior. Those who look to him by faith receive his righteousness. And that ought to give us great hope this morning. A hope that is built on nothing less. Christus sola, Christ alone, our hope. His blood and his righteousness. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and lead us again in a few songs as we prepare for the Lord's table. And will you pray, pray with me as they come and they do that? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he took our place on Calvary's cross, a place where we should be, a place where we deserve to be. And once and for all, he paid the debt that we owe. But Lord Jesus, we thank you that you also humbled yourself and came to earth and lived an obedient life. You as the eternal Son of God, clothed in humanity, lived a perfect life. And you are so kind and so gracious to us that if we will put our trust in you, you will grant us your resume. You will grant to us your perfection. Indeed, it was Paul who said that you became sin who knew no sin. That we who are sinners might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, that's mind-boggling. I still can't fathom it. I still can't understand why you would love us so much as you would give us all your good works, perfect works, and that we would be counted righteous because of your life. Lord, we don't deserve it, but we believe it. We hold on to it, and our hope is based on it. As we sing together, remind us, Lord, of how kind and gracious you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.